December 17th at a theater near you, you will see the most exciting original motion picture event of all time. King Kong. Rated PG. Check newspapers for a theater near you. everybody, welcome again to F This Movie, the official podcast of FThisMovie.com, movie love for movie lovers. My name is Patrick Bromley, and I'm super excited for this week's show because we are talking about the 1976 remake of King Kong, which means I am joined by the biggest monkey I know, JB. Listen, when Jaws cry, actually Jaws didn't cry. <laughs> Jaws, when Jaws died, cried off screen. Nobody cry. But when my conk dies, everybody going to cry. Plus, Patrick, what do you mean remake? According to the poster, this was the most exciting original motion picture of all time. Well, uh, who am I to argue with posters? Did they lie to us? They they may have, yeah. Um, Posters sometimes do that. J-Bones, how are you holding up? I'm doing okay. Um, You know, we... uh, There's a thing in the thing and you got to be extra careful so please if you're listening to this please be safe and um because it's it's getting real scary i i don't leave the house but i didn't leave the house a whole lot before yeah i i feel bad for people who left the house a lot sure do you miss going to the movies at all yeah do you miss it well not as much as I thought I would, okay. although my lovely wife pointed out last Sunday afternoon, she said, you know, usually we would be going to the movies because we usually went on Sunday afternoon and then enjoying some delicious Buena Beef. And we haven't done that for eight months. Uh, proof that AMC is getting desperate and that those uh, those uh, big brained executives were sitting around some conference table I got an email this week offering me a private screening for a certain amount if it was an older movie, another amount if it was a newer movie, and I can invite 10 people. So someone hit on the idea of if we can convince them that we clean the auditorium, maybe people would feel comfortable if they were only in the theater with people they knew. Mm -hmm. And I guess at whatever price point or whatever actuarial nonsense you have to do to turn a profit, they figured that 10 was the sweet spot. And I believe if it was an older movie, it was 10 bucks ahead. But I don't remember because I don't think I'm going into a movie theater for a little bit longer. And I thought I had just read that Illinois is shutting down all of its theaters. Because our numbers are and, crazy high here, and I think our theaters are closing. And again, I am a fan of our governor, but lately he seems to be wagging his finger and saying, don't make me do it. Right. Don't make me do it. You're going to make me do it. And I'm sitting there saying, why don't you just do it? Yeah. Nobody wants to give anybody bad news anymore. 
Nobody wants to be the parent. Right. But that's just me. Um, the Because I'm really trying during the uh, quarantine to be the glass half full guy. The latest news about both vaccines is very, very positive. So my fingers are crossed and um, boy, am I looking forward to that vaccine. And every time I see a news story, some people might be scared and trepidatious to take it. I'm like, I'll take theirs. <laughs> Give me two. Give me two. You got to take you got to take two spaced two weeks apart. Oh, look, I'll take eight <laughs> spaced. However you want. Give, give me the vaccine. Um, all right. Well, so if you haven't been going to the movies and you're not renting out your own private theater, have you seen anything good lately? <laughs> well, I've been busying myself with The Mandalorian, which started its second season. And I know it's not a movie, but. If you haven't started yet, which I, haven't. I don't think you have, no. it is so, so good. It's sort of a throwback to the late 60s in terms of the storytelling, and it's really, really well done. And what I really like about this season is every episode is a very different length because as those of us who love entertainment know, you can kind of internalize what a half an hour or an hour feels like, and you can kind of anticipate. But no, they're throwing us a curveball. So there's one episode that's 58 minutes. There's one episode that's 34 minutes. And I applaud this. And it's it's really, really good. I especially think anyone who's listening who has kids like in junior high, it's terrific. Okay. And then my wife and I did the entire Shits Creek Oh, wow. Which takes a time commitment, because if you want to watch the whole thing, it's 40 hours. It's a it's a complete work week that you will devote to Schitt's Creek. And as you probably heard, it's amazing. Um, I think it takes about a season to get rolling, although it might be that what they were planning was so different than what you were used to. It took you a season to get used to it. Remember kind of like what you used to say about the wire? Yeah. Um, it's amazing. I don't often laugh out loud, but that show made me laugh out loud. Like I haven't laughed out loud in a long time. I think um, the show took a season to find itself. I think that's fair to say, because I'll bet if you get to the end of season six and we're about halfway through season six, so we're not done with it yet, but I'll, okay. I'll bet if you were to go back and watch season one, you would say, well, this isn't really the show. Okay. I, I wasn't sure if you had been watching it. I also thought that maybe when they sat down and conceived it, they did. What's the phrase I'm looking for. They took the long view that we're going to go from this place to this place and it's going to take a while because where the characters end up is very different than where they start yeah which i like because yeah. that doesn't happen very often in um sitcoms do you like it yeah of course okay um again it does so many things so effortlessly and um i also like how if you're streaming there's no commercials and those episodes are short. Yeah, they're like 20 they're minutes. Little bite-sized things. Mm -hmm. So, at the end of Scary Movie Month, I'm 
seeing things like the undying monster and curse of the undead, which you reviewed for the site and death curse of Tartu, <laughs> which even though I own the disc, I caught on TCM. And, um, those three movies are bad movies. Those <laughs> movies do not give you what you're looking for in a movie, but I'm glad I saw them. And then courtesy of Joe Bob Briggs, I finally saw haunt. Okay. Which I loved. Really? I just thought it was so entertaining. And, you know, as you watch with Joe Bob, he's giving you the production history. And watching Haunt on the last drive-in, it seems to me that John Krasinski may have been given a little bit more credit than he was due for A Quiet Place because uh, Brian Woods and Scott Beck wrote A Quiet Place, and they also wrote, wrote Haunt. And... During all of the hoopla over A Quiet Place, I never heard those two guys mentioned. Um, I did, but not, not to the extent that you heard about John Krasinski. And um, I just thought Haunt was a lot of fun. Uh, shoots itself in the foot in the last two minutes, but what modern horror film doesn't? <laughs> and then, um, courtesy of 4K, I watched Christine. Ooh, very nice. For the first time since opening night at the theater. No kidding. I had only ever seen it once. And how did it hold up? The movie I remembered was very different than the movie that it is. Um, this time I enjoyed it a lot more. I thought it was, I don't want to say dumb fun, but I, I really enjoyed it. Is it the greatest horror film ever made? No. Is it the greatest King adaptation? No. But I liked it a lot. Especially yeah. in 4K. Yeah, it's... Uh, I've said this a million times. I still think it's missing a chunk where we see Arnie go from one thing to the other. Oh, I agree with that. But other than that, it's. I like it more every time I see it. Yeah, um, lots of good um, uh, character actors in supporting roles. Uh, because we were quarantined, uh, I was forced to bring my son home because I hadn't seen him in almost a year, and he brought his uh, lovely significant other with him, and because you weren't going to have strangers in your house, mm. uh, we actually had our own scary movie night. Nice. The, f the night before Halloween, and um, we watched the Benicio Del Toro Wolfman, which was my first podcast ever, oh. and Army of Darkness, okay. and Trick or Treat. Jake and I kind of chose the movies together. And howie wowie, I liked The Wolfman this time even more than I did 10 years ago. No kidding. The part that I didn't like is like three minutes long. And to be fair, they adequately prepare you for that. If you've seen it already and you watch it again, the first 15 minutes is like, oh, okay, I see where this is headed. Are you talking about the... The wolf fight? Right, the revelation of right. a okay. certain character. Okay. Um, I liked it so much, the four of us um, just enjoyed the shit out of it. And as we're watching it, we were sort of wondering, why doesn't this have a better reputation? I watched it recently because Heather and I did a show on it for Daily Dead. Uh, because it was celebrating an anniversary, a 10-year anniversary, and I still find it to be a giant mess. Okay. 
As I said 10 years ago, here's an opinion that hasn't changed. One of the main reasons I like it is the sets, the costumes, and the cinematography. Sure. Because 10 years ago I said it's like walking around Universalville right. or Universal Town. And I like that a lot. But uh, my son does not suffer fools gladly. Um, his girlfriend is charming and delightful and knows a lot about film. She studied film in college. And, of course, Jan is smarter than me. And it wasn't like I was cheerleading and they were rolling their eyes. All four of us were enjoying it. But at this point, there's so many variables, you can't keep them straight. Could it be we're just really enjoying that the four of us are watching a movie together, any movie together? <laughs> no, I, you know, it's also possible that you guys all really like it and I'm the one who doesn't get it. Also, before I forget, uh, on this podcast in the past, we have sung the praises of Grace of My Heart. Yes. It's out on Blu-ray today. Yes. The package arrived at my doorstep a few hours ago. Um, I'm going to watch it tonight. I can't wait. Uh, how long did that take for that to get a proper release? Yeah. Although the movie, uh, we're, the movie we're talking about tonight still doesn't have one. Audio commentary, uh, by the way, by Allison Anders on the disc. Is that a new commentary or is that carried over from the DVD? I'm not sure. Okay. I, I had forgotten that Scorsese uh, was the executive producer on the film. Yeah. I watched it yeah. about a year ago. And, uh, man, that's a good movie. Yeah. I can't wait. Um, what have you seen lately, sir? Let's see. Uh, we watched a movie, a newer movie called Spontaneous. Have you heard about Spontaneous? No, I have not. Spontaneous is kind of a young adult movie. Um, I'm looking up the writer-director. I apologize because I can't remember the name. Uh, written and directed by Brian Duffield. And it's a young adult film about these teenagers who begin spontaneously exploding. And it's very violent and bloody when it happens. And nobody knows why it's happening. And nobody knows when it's going to happen or who it's going to happen to. Um... It's very, very good. I found it to be very, very sad and hard to watch because it gets you thinking so much about death and about youth and about what it feels like to be young and how scary the world is. Uh, it's watching it during the pandemic was like probably not a great idea when we're all worried about, am I going to catch this thing? What's, what's it going to do to me if I get it? So it brought a lot out of me. Um, but it's a really good movie that I recommend to everybody. It's available to stream right now or rent for like four or five bucks on Amazon. And did you watch it with the kids? No, it's way too violent. Oh, okay. You had said young adult, so that's what maybe. Yeah, no, more like high schooler uh, age. Um, I will add that to my list. Yeah, I realized you preparing for tonight's show that when I am sitting down in the Woodfield one to see King Kong. Uh, I'm only two years older than Charlie. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh, he's getting too big. Um, I watched the great escape for the first time. Well, this is fascinating because I have a long storied history with that movie. What did you think? I really liked it. I didn't know very much about it, so I didn't, expect the entire last hour okay yeah I, I can see that it's it's a great movie 
And it's kind of a stealth great movie because it's almost like the movie knows what it is and takes its time to, to tell this really interesting story. Well, and it starts off as kind of fun and goofy. Yeah. And by the end, it's not that. No. In a, in a <laughs> lot of ways, it's similar to Dirty Dozen in that um, the, the goofiness of these guys who are thrown together gets ameliorated somewhat by what happens when they're on the mission. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I really liked it. And while it's a long movie, it didn't feel like a long movie. I just didn't. Um, it's like when I, when we went to see Gone with the Wind last year, like I I knew Gone with the Wind. I knew of it. It existed in pop culture, but I didn't really know what happened in Gone with the Wind. So the directions that that movie takes, I was like, what? That's what this movie is. I had no idea what, and I don't, I guess I don't want to spoil the great escape, which is kind of stupid. It's a 50 year old movie, but, uh, I didn't anticipate the entire last hour of the movie and, and kind of how serious it gets and kind of how heavy it gets. But I mean, it's worth watching just for the cast alone. Very much. Yeah. And, um, next year when veterans day rolls around, uh, TCM always shows pretty much the same, smorgasbord of uh, World War II pictures, um, including always the best years of our lives in prime time. But they also showed The Dirty Dozen and I think maybe The Great Escape, but don't quote me. Um, TCM's a pretty reliable place for World War II movies on Veterans Day. Okay. I honestly think it was that one short clip where they put DiCaprio into The Great Escape. Oh, yeah, that kind of put the bug in my ear to really want to see it, and then Criterion put it out, which gave me a great excuse to blind buy it. And, the minute uh, you said "Great Escape," I knew that's why you watched it. That I think that was why. You I mean, said that was... "Great Escape," and I was like, "Oh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood." <laughs> right, I think that did it. Because when Once Upon a Time in Hollywood came out, you had that poster up in your house faster than lightning. And I remember one night you sent me a text. Is <laughs> yeah. this worth watching? <laughs> Krakatoa like, east of Java. He's making a list <laughs> of all the movies mentioned in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. And I believe in my text back to you, I said, it's not essential viewing. And oh, by the way, if you look on any map, Krakatoa is west of Java. <laughs> I think it was like one of those Kino Lorber sales and I was debating blind buying oh, it. Well, and I did not, based on Have you seen your feedback. The Franco Zeffirelli Romeo and Juliet, because that's referenced in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I haven't seen it since junior high, probably. And I'm wondering who between you and I have seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood more. Probably you, because you um, saw it a bunch in theaters. Yeah, that was. Remember when? theaters okay. um <laughs> that uh in once upon a time in hollywood what's playing at the cinerama dome um i don't remember because we see the lights going on during yeah. that wonderful sequence in any case i'm sure one of our listeners right now knows the answer to this oh and they're definitely beating their heads against their laptop why do you keep having jb <laughs> on the show he knows nothing I want to revisit uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood based on uh, the news that Tarantino is writing a novelization of it. Yes, I just read that today, and I was 
in my office today because I had nothing better to do. And right now I'm staring at my 4K of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That was that gift set that came with all the oh, yeah. yeah. And I also have the soundtrack on vinyl because I'm that guy. <laughs> um... uh, attention, attention, Hollywood. If you could make a movie that will make me go see it seven or eight times, I'll buy the stuff. Yeah. I'll buy all the souvenirs. Yeah. You should sell them in the lobby, man. Um, because I hadn't had enough of epic movies last weekend with The Great Escape, I also, for the first time ever, watched Terrence Malick's The New World. Which I have not seen. It seemed appropriate, given that Thanksgiving is coming up. Um, and this is, of course, a story about not the discovery of America, but the arrival to America by John Smith and uh, his relationship with Pocahontas. And I loved it. I thought it was really, really great. But I realized that like when Terrence Malick only had three movies, which was the case when The Thid Red Line came out in 1998, uh, mm -hmm. he was, for me, he was three for three. He was kind of untouchable. He was like a Stanley Kubrick. And the more movies he makes, the the further away I get from being into his his approach, his style. The New World is kind of the breaking point, and I was likening it to Radiohead. Radiohead put out, like, Kid A. Oh. I think Tree of mm -hmm. Life is, is his Kid A. It's like, this is I... the one that people herald as a masterpiece, and it's the one that pushes me out completely. I understand your analogy completely because uh, Jake and Jan are huge Radiohead fans and I'm familiar with those records. I agree with you about Tree of Life. I don't want to discourage any filmmaker from going far afield, but Tree of Life was problematic for me. <laughs> yeah, and again, most people will herald it as his masterpiece and one of the best movies of the 2000s. Um, his his movies after Tree of Life, it's exciting to see him working so much, but uh, one after another, I just find very little to connect to. So for me, The New World was kind of the end of my relationship with Terrence Malick. When The New World came up, came out, rather, maybe I'm making this up, maybe I dreamt it, wasn't there a movie that came out about Hollywood or about people in Hollywood, maybe it was a comedy, and the joke was that the characters in the movie were up against a movie that was a lot like The New World. I can't think of anything, but that like doesn't... Like the movie they were competing with at the Oscars right, was right. about pilgrims and and the, the founding of The New World. I don't know. It's a distant memory. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. The Criterion disc of The New World has three cuts of the movie on it. It has the 125-minute theatrical cut, a first cut that ran about 150 minutes, and we watched the extended director's cut, which runs about 180 minutes. So that's the one that I recommend, because I didn't watch the other two, but I assume that's the one Terrence Malick wants us to see. Wow. I think I've told this story before. When Jan and I finally got around to watching Ray the movie Ray, the disc gave us a choice between the theatrical version and the director's cut. And we chose the director's cut. And about two hours in, uh, he wasn't blind yet. <laughs> so we were, we knew 
And it was we looked around. It was dark outside, <laughs> and it wasn't dark when we started. Uh, the director's cut of Ray is very long. Yikes! I've only seen that movie once. I feel like I got everything that I'm going to get out of it. Um, you know what we watched the other night, um, which I hadn't seen in a dog's age, Walk the Line. Okay. And as much as I like that movie or parts of that movie, um, Walk Hard has pretty much destroyed yes. a lot of Walk the Line if you're a sentient human being because clearly Walk the Line was making fun of a lot of things, but... Some of the things it's making fun of are very specific to Walk the Line, and it's very hard not to think of Dewey Cox um, <laughs> cutting his brother in half with a machete whenever they talk about... I'm uh, cutting half John, pretty bad. When they talk about Johnny Cash's <laughs> brother Jack. Not that I mean to make fun of that. And uh, the actor in Walk Hard, whose name I can't remember, um, is doing a really great job channeling the spirit of Robert Patrick who is just such an irredeemable prick and yeah. walked the line. Yeah. Um, the last movie that I watched is the 2020 Ben Wheatley remake of Rebecca, starring Army oh. Hammer and Lily James, I think. Just recently I saw that that was on Netflix, and I was like, they remade Rebecca? Yeah. They remade Rebecca. Um Here's what I'll say about Rebecca. Everything about it feels like if you were watching a movie in which Lily James and Army Hammer both played actors and they were shooting a movie inside that movie, the movie mm -hmm. in the movie would be Rebecca. Everything about it feels that way. Every, it's even oversaturated in this way where they would want you to know the difference between the movie in the movie and the regular movie. This makes sense once you've seen it, I promise. No, I know exactly what you're talking about. It Ebert used to say the whole movie's in quotation marks. Yeah, it's 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 not good. Uh, I didn't like it. And I tweeted something out that I have yet to really like a Ben Wheatley movie, and yet I'll always watch the new one. You know, every time he puts out a new movie, I'm excited to see it and that I need a name for this phenomenon filmmakers that we have yet to really jive with but we keep giving chances to okay just off the top of my head uh wheatley weekly uh sure um am i remembering this correctly is erica a big fan of the original rebecca mm, she likes it but not necessarily a big fan or am i thinking of wuthering heights you are thinking of wuthering heights wrong okay, lawrence that's, olivier movie yeah. Yeah, she my, loves uh, that movie. That's the source of my confusion. Okay, I remembered it was one of those gothic romances. Right. Right. Um yeah, so I can't really recommend Rebecca, but I recommend the other 3. I think in the next few weeks between now and Christmas, I will be bored enough to watch it. Yeah, I mean, as a curiosity cuz I had heard going into it, that it was not very good. Most people that I talked to did not like it. I know Adam Risky was not a fan. My mom watched it for some reason and really didn't like it. Um, but I still wanted to check it out for myself, and I'm assuming you will too at some point. I'm beginning to think that should be Netflix's new slogan for the foreseeable future. Netflix, bored yet? <laughs> we'll get you eventually. <laughs> Uh, so we're about to get into the time machine. Yes. 
and go back to 1976 when I am alive on the planet and you are not. I am not. And I would stand in the lobby of the Woodfield One, uh, half of the Woodfield One and Two. The greatest movie back theater. Then was, right, that was the nicest movie theater in the area, certainly with the biggest screens. And remember one auditorium was gold and the other one was like red checkerboard? Yeah. They were like color-coded. And I would uh, stand in the lobby as I often did because, again, remember, I'm 14. I can't drive. <laughs> I'm standing in the lobby because I'm waiting for someone to come pick me up in a car. And I'm looking at the posters in the lobby, and I see that there's this King Kong movie. And uh, you have waxed poetic on this podcast before about um, your reaction to Batman coming out that one summer. Yeah. And thinking about it, this movie might have been my Batman because by the time I'm 14, I am a movie fan. In fact, by the time I'm 14, I'm a snob. <laughs> and when I was 14 in 1976, that's that defined my reaction to King Kong. When it was over, I remember thinking, how dare they? How dare they remake King Kong or how dare they remake it that way? Both. Okay. Because I was a big fan of the original. Right. And... Uh, Obviously, I've seen it since then. Uh, one year, uh, G-Fest, uh, which is in our area, and the weekend of G-Fest, which is this big Godzilla fan convention, they show movies at a local movie theater on the weekend of the con. And um, just a year or two ago, one of the G-Fest movies was the 1976 King Kong on the big, big Pickwick screen. I would love to so see this to on a big screen. Yeah, um, except for the obvious matte work, which uh, actually suffers on the big screen. Um, all the stuff they shot in Hawaii is very beautiful. Yeah. I think their decision to actually go out on location was good, and of course it was the same decision that the movie Lost made. Um, watching it last night on the... TCM curated channel of HBO now uh, I thought a really interesting way to watch the 1976 King Kong because spoiler alert it's not very good um, is you can watch it and pretend it's the dude's backstory from the Big Lebowski <laughs> uh, so where does this rank with the in terms of King Kongs there are three. Well, well, actually kind of four, if you consider that at least 45 minutes of King Kong versus Godzilla is a retread sure. of the King Kong story. I mean, they're on a boat, they go to the island, they're doing the ceremony. King Kong fights some stuff before he fights Godzilla. So, I don't know, we'll put an asterisk next to that one. Um, the 1976 King Kong is dead last. Dead last. Yeah, I think it and is for me, too. And you're a bigger fan of the Peter Jackson film than I am. But I'm a big fan of the Peter Jackson film. My my objections to Jackson's film are just quibbles, are just little tiny quibbles. In fact, the first half hour of Jackson's film is just magnificent yeah. in every way, shape, or form. And I love the fact that the Peter Jackson film gives birth to 
uh, the part of the Universal Studios tour where you, the tram drives into the tunnel and you put on your 3D glasses and what is being touted as a mini sequel to King Kong takes place all around you in 3D. I still haven't been on that because I haven't been to Universal since 2004 before the Peter Jackson movie by, came out. Right. It was done by Weta. And it's just extraordinary in every way, shape, or form because a year ago I was there Thanksgiving weekend and I had some time on my hands and no one else wanted to go with me. So I went alone to Universal and all I did was go on the tram tour seven times in a row. (laughs) In fact, by the end, I was asking the nice people, can I just stay on? Can I just stay seated? And they let me. Um, And the tram tour is different. Every time you take it, depending on your tour guide and what's filming and what they want to show you and stuff, there's some things that are the same, but there's some things that are different. And I had myself a butter beer in Harry Potter land, and I rode the tram tour seven times, and I was a happy man. Ah, life before quarantine. I'm beginning to think, I was sharing this with my high school friends the other day, um, my retirement job might just be Universal Studios tram tour guide. (laughs) Now, don't dismiss this out of hand. I would never. Now, you are are a bright man, and you've been to Universal Studios, and you certainly know me. Don't you think I could do that? Oh, absolutely. And I know a lot about Universal, and it's not like I right. I sat down to bone up on it. Right. I, I would bone up on it, and I could certainly answer everyone's questions. And I think I could be reasonably fun and avuncular. I, I think that's my perfect retirement. It wouldn't be like working. Right. This would if be I a... go there and ride if I go there and ride the damn thing seven times, why not pay me? This would be at the one in LA. Yes. Because you're not the... relocating to Orlando. No. <laughs> that would be problematic. But um yeah, if if you're somehow watching the nineteen seventy six King Kong and you're worried that it's not entertaining you think that this this movie represents the formative years of the dude right this adventure story is how he got to be the man he is (laughs) in the big lebowski let me tell you he's seen some Um, shit man oh he's seen some shit (laughs) and the other thing that might entertain you and i just couldn't get over this because again i hadn't watched this movie in a while and I'm watching it last night and enjoying the hell out of it. Um, remember when movies had a lot of secondary characters that were played by professional actors who were really good at their craft and that you had come to love? Yes. So I'm watching the 76 King Kong and I'm thinking Charles Grodin, Rene Auberginois, Jeff Bridges, Ed Lauder, John Randolph. They know what movie they're in. They know exactly what movie they're in, and they're delightful. Do we have time for a John Randolph tangent? Do we ever? John Randolph was a working actor for at least four decades. Um, He has the lead in a wonderful film called Seconds by John Frankenheimer, where he plays a middle-aged man 
who's dissatisfied with his life. I will leave it there, but he's extraordinary in seconds. And I literally never put that at, together that that was John Randolph. Yeah, that's John Randolph. Holy and he's he's in everything and he's so good and just the 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 mark of a complete professional, one of my favorite character actors. So, the other day, I'm bored and I have all the president's men on this movies anywhere thing, which is where your digital codes go to die. But if you have movies anywhere on your TV or your laptop or your tablet or your phone, you can watch these movies anywhere, Patrick. Yeah. Hence the name. And I'm bored and I decide to watch all the president's men for reasons that should seem obvious. (laughs) And I think you should watch all the president's men once a year because it's just too good. And I'm watching all the president's men and I'm enjoying the hell out of it. And in the spirit of character actors, I notice that two of the Washington post editors are played by Martin Balsam and Jack Warden. And I begin to think, what if they're playing the same characters that they were in 12 angry men and after the events of that film, they both went back to school on the GI Bill. Martin Balsam's the foreman and Warden's that asshole with the baseball tickets. Right. And they both got degrees and they became editors on the Washington Post. And so 12 Angry Men is their backstory. Anyway, back to all the president's men. I'm watching the film, and at one point in the film, the Robert Redford character calls John Mitchell the Attorney General of the United States under Nixon, to get him to comment on a story. And John Mitchell was a drunk, and he answers the phone, and he doesn't know what time it is, and he doesn't know what day it is, and he says a bunch of really nasty stuff, and then he hangs up. And I'm watching the film, and I said, that voice sounds familiar. And I ran it back, and I watched the scene again, and I said, that's John Randolph. That's John Randolph's voice. So I'm um, waiting with bated breath for the end credits, and he's uncredited. But thanks to the IMDb, it is John Randolph. Nice. I got it right. John Randolph played John Mitchell in All the President's Men. And he's the uh, captain of the ship in King Kong, and um, he's John Mitchell in All the President's Men. And I love character actors. John Lone. <laughs> Remember John Lone? Sure. Um, this was his first movie. King yeah. Kong was his first movie. And he plays the cook, somewhat stereotypically. And he's eight years. When he made King Kong, uh, Iceman, a film that I'm a, actually a big fan of. Iceman, which was his big thing. I, I think he might have gotten an Academy Award nomination for that. Um Iceman was still eight years in his future. Wow. John Randolph God was... Uh, how many years in the future uh, uh, Rush Hour 2 was. <laughs> John Randolph was Jerry Seinfeld's original dad on Seinfeld and then was recast. Right, before they replaced him. And yeah. you know what? I was thinking um, some of the younger listeners of our podcast have seen John Randolph because he's Chevy Chase's father in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Yeah. And he's got that great speech that he used to get through Christmas 
with a little help from his friend Jack Daniels. <laughs> um, King Kong 1976 is at the center of two very early movie memories for me. One is my earliest movie memory. I had to be two or three if the movie is still playing at that time. Maybe. If it, if it played for a long time. I, I, I have this memory of us going to see Close Encounters at the drive-in. Movies did play for a longer time. Back. Yeah. Uh, going to see Close Encounters, but the whole time trying to watch King Kong on the other screen. And that might be like... And how, how successful were you? Not very, I don't think. But uh, And then I remember being maybe... Do you remember what... Oh, go ahead. Do you remember what drive-in it was? No, I was way too young. Because this might explain it. A lot of the drive-ins back then had double and even triple features every weekend. Okay. And so further down the bill, they might have been showing an older movie just to round out okay. the double or triple feature. That happened all the time. Okay. So that might have been why they maybe. were still showing it. Yeah. Um, and then I remember once being maybe five or six, it was a Sunday night. We had just finished dinner. King Kong 1976 was on TV. And it was a big deal that it was on TV because I think NBC had paid crazy amounts. N- it was, it was the NBC big event. Yeah, and all I wanted to do was watch King Kong, but I was very sick. I had some sort of abdominal problem, and my mom had to take me to the hospital. And I was so upset because I wanted to stay at home and watch King Kong despite being very very sick. And now, of course, in retrospect, we know this was God. <laughs> trying to prevent you from watching something. Obviously. Well, let's, let's address the 500-pound gorilla in the room. The 1976 King Kong is not very good. Uh, not by traditional metrics, no. <laughs> <laughs> I will grant you this, and maybe it's just nostalgia, but when I watched it last night, I was on board for the first half hour. All right. I think the first half hour works. It's a reasonably clever updating. Um, what eventually sinks it, though, is is a couple things. Um, I know you're not supposed to pay attention to this, because if the score is working, it's supposed to disappear. But I think this movie might have one of the worst scores of all time. Really? I didn't mind the score. There is no recognizable melody of any sort... Um, in fact, when it started, I thought it was an early John Williams score, but of course it's not. It's John Barry. Yeah. And there's a scene late in the film where um, Jack and Dwan are running through the city. And the music that is playing not only has nothing to do with running or suspense or any sort of underscore for what's going on, but... I'm watching the film, and at that point, I'm so divested because it stopped being entertaining 20 minutes ago that the music that is put under their running away could both be used in any movie scene ever made or none. <laughs> it's, it's, it's nothing. It's nonsense. The opening credits theme screams um, either uh, network television or, as my wife pointed out, because my wife made the screening much more enjoyable by not watching it. She was busy doing something else, but she was in the same room. So she would often comment just on the score. Uh. And she said, 
to her, the score sounded like the score of a disaster movie. Yeah, it does. But maybe that's just because we're talking Paramount in 1976. And John uh, Guillerman? How do we say that? The director. Right. Um, the other thing I think you have to take to task is the script, which is problematic. Uh, Lorenzo Semple Jr., who wrote 14 episodes of Batman, the original TV series, um, also wrote Flash Gordon. So does it come down to the fact that Lorenzo Semple Jr. knows how to sort of send things up, but it's up the up to the director to do it correctly? Well, I was trying to reconcile this in my head because one of my issues with King Kong 1976, even though I enjoy the movie, um, is that it lacks wonder. And I think one of the reasons it lacks wonder which is something that neither the can be that cannot be said of the original uh, nor of the Peter Jackson remake uh, is because I think of Lorenzo Semple's script. And I was thinking about his script for Flash Gordon and how he alienated a lot of fans of Flash Gordon, especially at the time that that movie came out, because they felt like he was mocking this thing that they loved. And for me, Flash Gordon works. Now, is that because of the way that Mike Hodges interprets his script, as you say? Is it because Flash Gordon lends itself more to camp? Because he seems to be, in his script for King Kong, he's, it, it feels a little bit like he's above it. And I don't think you can be above it if you're going to do this material. I think you have to treat this, uh, you have to confront this material head on and take it more or less seriously. Um, a really good example of what you're talking about is. Uh, the scene where Kong fights the snake. Which now, is the scene the that I remember King... leaving to go to the hospital. I, I saw the snake <laughs> and then we had to go. But that moment was burned in my brain forever. That was It's been many, many years since that happened. But that scene is burned in my brain because it was like, I saw the snake, it pulled apart. Okay, now let's go to the hospital. In the original, Kong fights a bunch of stuff. Yeah. In this... It's like they're including it because they have to. There's no scene where he fights a prehistoric beast. As far as I can tell, in the 76 King Kong, there are not other prehistoric beasts on this Skull Island. It's just Kong and a snake. But in the original 33 version, he fights a dinosaur, and he fights that thing in the water, and of course the men on the log. But he also fights a snake. And the snake fight in the 76 King Kong is so perfunctory. Yeah. It's so short. And he, of course, he dispatches the snake the same way. But here's where you can tell the difference between two different movies. And this is one of my favorite things about the original Kong. Yeah. In both fights in the original Kong, when Kong wins, he then plays with the head of the creature he's just killed in a very specific way. He like opens the mouth and closes it like it's a toy. Like this don't work no more. Exactly. Like, yeah. Like he's, he's, he's um interested in the fact that it doesn't move anymore. And clearly Kong has taught himself that this means you're the winner, but there's something so childish 
childlike and so interesting about him playing with the snake's head. But in, in the 76 version, it's really pretty gory. Yeah. It's gross. Yeah. And, and then it's over. Well, um, it exists I'd say to give. Biggest... Oh, I'm sorry. It exists to give no. to give them a chance to escape, basically. Exactly, and and I would say that uh, Jessica Lange tries mightily, and she's very entertaining in this film. But the way the character of Duan is conceived, <laughs> um, first of all, the producer of the film is using Duan, and. Maybe this is because I'm watching it last night and now I'm a dirty old man, but I don't think that's the case. De Laurentiis seems to be waging a competition to see what you can get away with in a PG movie in terms of Dwan's attire and her nudity. Okay. I would say in 76, this is as naked as it got in a PG film, but it, it goes farther than that. I don't think Lorenzo Semple knows what to do with Duan, and some of his solutions don't make any sense. So, for instance, when the natives are carrying her to the bridal altar, the assumption is they've drugged her, right? I think so. But we never actually see right. them giving her something or making her drink something, but she's she's out of it. She's She's just... Her eyes are half closed. She's swaying back and forth. And then, you know, she doesn't wake up until she screams and it's Kong. So in that scene, she's drugged. Later, I think this is aboard the boat, the presence of Kong seems to put her in a trance. Rather than come up with an honest way for her to react, uh, except maybe more wisecracks, because she does a lot of that 70s What's your Ugh. sign nonsense? Awful. She calls but him a, again, a chauvinist. Male chauvinist ape. Right. That she, she gets the eyes half closed and she's swaying around. And so Lorenzo Semple Jr.'s solution to this screenplay problem is, well, she's not all there. Yeah, he it's seems... Odd he's odd because uh, he, Lang is trying... He's using the character to make fun of a certain type of like California girl from yes. everything from the name forward. And so every decision she makes is sort of inane. All of her dialogue is kind of inane. And then you have Jessica Lange trying to infuse this character with some sympathy because it's very important that we empathize with Duan and feel about her the way that Kong does. Uh, and yet she's constantly at odds with what the screenplay is asking her to do, like stop and buy me a drink as they're running away from the murderous ape rampaging his right. way from New York. Which, which I want to talk about in a little while. But Jessica um, Lange kind of became a laughing stock based on this movie yeah. and left the business for three years to go take acting lessons and then, you know, shut everybody the fuck up a couple of years later when she wins an Oscar for Tootsie. I don't dislike her performance in this movie at all. No, I don't, because I correctly assess that she's been left high and dry by a screenplay that wants her to play something that either doesn't exist or doesn't work in the context of this story. Um, hold on, what was I going to say? Um, she did, in fairness, win a Golden Globe for this movie. Right, but this was at the as like the rising of, star or whatever of it 
of it can be bought. Right. Um, I do want to point out that between King Kong and all the president's men in 1976, we see the uh, the incredible cultural impact of Deep Throat. Oh, yes. Because both movies reference <laughs> Deep Throat as a cultural touchstone, although King Kong, of course, makes it into a joke. Right. What girl do you know has been had her life saved by Deep Throat? And this whole thing with Dwan gets worse and worse and sillier and sillier as the film goes along. And I'm glad you mentioned Kong's Loose, Buy Me a Drink. Yeah. Because that just screams, well, I need these two characters to be here when these other things happen. And so what that we've seen of these two characters so far in the movie would make that course of action make any sense at all. Right. At least, if you're going to do that, establish that one of them's an alcoholic, <laughs> then at least there would be some compelling reason. I mean, it just it doesn't make any sense. And um, things start to happen in this movie. I was Again, I was watching it last night, and I was thinking all these great thoughts. Things about halfway through. I'm with this movie to the halfway point, which, by the way, is when Kong shows up. Kong shows up almost exactly halfway through. Things start to happen in this movie only because that's how the story goes. That's the only explanation. Well, why does this happen after this happens? Oh, well, that's what happens in the story. That's what happens in the original story, which is why advertising this as the most exciting original motion picture of all time makes no sense. (laughs) Um, On a completely different note, all the stuff with the natives on Skull Island? Yeah. I've been wanting to ask you this for the last 24 hours. All the stuff with the natives on Skull Island, is that stuff ever not racist? No. I mean... It will always be racist. Yeah. I I don't know how you get around that. Although again, Jan was not watching the film. She was merely listening to it. And she said, are they black in this one? Or are they sort of Pacific South Pacific Islanders? Right. Which if they had done that might kind of left you off the hook, but no, no, unless, unless my TV is miscalibrated, the natives in the 1976 King Kong are black. Correct. Okay. Uh, and it is uh, unfortunately racist. How do you feel about, uh, since we talk about you know Kong showing up, how do you feel about the effects in the film and how they hold up? The Carlo Rambaldi, well, the, Rick Baker effects. A couple things about this. First of all, uh, and this is something no one remembers, they did a publicity and public relations blitz trying to convince people that it was a robot. Really? Yes. That De Laurentiis was going to build this robot, and instead of stop motion, which everyone was looking down their nose and and piffling, which makes no sense because the stop motion in the original is the film's biggest artistic achievement. Well, that's why they didn't Um, do dinosaurs on Skull Island, because they didn't want to use any stop motion. Right, and God forbid if you have a guy in a T-Rex suit. In any case, um, there was a lot of (coughs) hot air expended about this robot because the robot is in the film, 
You saw it. It's in the film for about 12 seconds. Is it the wide shot near the end? When the gas tank is pulled away and it's in the cage and there's a couple shots of the robot because they were showing that off to all the... The the crowd in that scene, I think they were like contest winners or something. Yeah. And uh, it doesn't match the uh, Rick Baker footage at all. Right. In fact, it's jarring when it goes back and forth. Yeah. And I must say, clearly, it was the best gorilla suit that had ever been um, constructed up to that point. And Rick Baker tries, God damn it, he tries to give a performance inside of it. But again, because of the script, because of the direction, there's a whole bunch of the stuff between Kong and Dwan that really comes across as funny and creepy because of the expression on Kong's face. (laughs) We're watching it last night, and I kept freezing the frame and annoying my wife by saying, put your glasses on. Look at this. What, What is that face conveying? And it's... It's like Kong is a 12-year-old who's never seen lady parts before. It's just, he's got this creepy expression, and clearly that's in the original, because there's that scene that was cut for a number of years where Kong is sort of tickling her and smelling his finger and taking off little pieces of Faye Ray's wardrobe. But in this, it's just... uh, Again, I, I don't know what people's reaction to it was in 76. I don't remember, but... And 2020 is a very different year, but it really comes across as weird and creepy and unintentionally funny. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. You know, I I think the effects themselves still hold up for the most part. Like the the use of the giant hand and the the rear projection and, you know, all, all the different the, the optical hand, techniques. The hand is something. The range of motion that that hand yeah. has is really um, a marvel. I will say, though, and this is my personal bias, because when people look at the original King Kong and, well, I don't know if anyone's ever done this. I haven't been privy to it. But anyone who would watch the original King Kong and sort of laugh at how the effects are dated I think has to be responding to the fact that it's in black and white because the matte lines in the 76 King Kong are much more noticeable to me sure. than the matte lines in the 1933 version. And in the 1933 version, it's certainly not realistic, but the, the forest, the jungle on Skull Island, the way it's glass paintings and that there's different levels to it and you can look all the way back through it, it's it's like a like a, a book illustration. It's like it's so creepy and, and real, but not realistic. So maybe that's the, the, the problem. The hard matte lines last night really gave me a problem. Okay. Um, that anyone would watch this and say, Oh, well, it's state of the art. Although it was state of the art for seventy six. Right. Well, that's, you know, you talk about the difference in the two Skull Islands. Again, the Skull Island of 1933 and I would say Skull Island of 2005 are places full of mystery and wonder. And Skull Island 1976 is just this island, you know, where we have to 
we we have a, a, a slow uh, or slow a quick uh, excursion before we get on a boat it's and go a back to New York City. It's a place where we run around. Right, <laughs> right. We run around, and the story is advanced because famously the spider pit sequence in 33 was cut out because it stopped the picture dead. And then Jackson takes it and turns it into this tour de force <laughs> sequence. That's so gross. And nothing like that is in the 76 version. Again, was it that they did not want to present a prehistoric Island? I think it had to do with not wanting to, include other special effects techniques that would call attention to themselves uh, in contrast to how they were doing King Kong. This is the ghost of Dino De Laurentiis. I have the answer <laughs> to your question. In my conk, there's conk and a snake. That's it. Because I want to make the audience cry. And no creature is needed for this. You need a snake. And you need Conk, because I want people to cry when Conk dies. <laughs> I don't want anything stealing the focus from Conk. I believe Dino De Laurentiis got a pizza here. He don't know who ordered it. <laughs> um, I will say this. I don't wish to pile on. The movie is fun for what it is. I didn't. I didn't walk around the house shaking my head right. when it was over, right. thinking that I had wasted my time. Um, there's some fun performances. Renee Auberginois is having a great time. Yeah, Charles Grodin seems to be having that. a lot of fun and resists the urge to literally twirl his mustache, which Jan brought up last night. And remember, she's not watching the film, so I had to remind her that in fact he does have a mustache. Yeah in this movie that he can twirl. Um, he does have one really funny line at the end, near the end, one of his last lines. And I don't remember what it is. <laughs> it's, uh... Well, you know, what's what's interesting in the original Kong and also in Peter Jackson's remake, we have Carl Denham, who's ostensibly the hero of the piece. But later we find that that's Jack Driscoll. Who's much more of a standard stock storybook hero. And Kong is the villain of the piece. He's big and he's scary and he wants to kill you and he, he poses a threat to the girl. And then the, the marvel of the original King Kong and of Peter Jackson's remake is that as the film goes along, those two characters change places and Kong becomes our hero because he certainly didn't get anything what he deserved. And Denim um, is is the, the, the piece's villain um, in his ambition, in his uh, failure to see what he was doing. So I find that fascinating. Here's another reason why the 76 King Kong doesn't know what it's doing. Um, why do they kill off Groden? Because he's been such a prick? Yeah. 1976 audiences want the easy... Um, uh, satisfaction of seeing him ground to dust under Kong's heel. Well, but by killing Groden, you're left with no one to say the famous final line. Right. And so you you have 
what uh, Jessica Lang is standing there in the crowd yelling for Jack, right? Isn't that how it ends? Jack. Yeah, but Jack. it's also her being surrounded by photographers and cameras, and there's a real kind of fuck you energy to it. Like, well, you got what you wanted, Dwan. Now you're famous. And it just contributes. Okay, I'll, I'll give you that. It contributes to the overall cynicism of the movie. And this is a, a weirdly cynical King Kong, which is not normally what I associate with King Kong. Well, and I think you have put your finger on it because earlier we were talking about Flash Gordon. Yeah. Because both of these are mega international productions. These are major motion pictures um, that are designed to put asses in seats. You can say a lot of things about Flash Gordon, but it's not cynical. No, it's not at all. I I don't think it is. And maybe that's what it comes down to. Kong is all too aware what it is and what Semple seems to be trying to make fun of. I don't think um, the, the Flash Gordon film is overtly making fun of anything. Well, and maybe again, as you said, the maybe production it's production designs over the top. It may be the way that the script is interpreted because it could probably be argued that Semple's script, if you were to just read it, is goofing on Flash Gordon a little bit. But I think yes. the way that Mike Hodges brings it to the screen and uh, the way that it looks and the way that it's designed and the performances that all the actors and Sam Jones voiceover artists give are sincere or you know kind of knowingly silly um so the way that mike hodges interprets it is sort of big-hearted and goofy uh whereas i think john guillerman just interprets lorenzo semple's script very literally yes and because he's working on a big budget hollywood film with deadlines that uh, I think the craftsman takes over. Right. Um, this, this is going to seem like a tangent, but it's not. Um, there is a wonderful documentary about Fiddler on the Roof that's currently playing on PBS. This is the second week in a row that Fiddler on the Roof has come up on this show. As well it should. <laughs> uh, a year or two ago, I actually went to see it in a movie theater, and it's called Fiddler on the Roof, Miracle of Miracles, and it's a documentary about the whole Fiddler phenomenon. And when I sat there and watched it, I had the same reaction as when I sat through the um, Hattie Lamar documentary that I sat there in the theater and said, this is going to wind up on PBS. You can just tell. So the other night I'm watching this Fiddler on the Roof documentary and it features Topol because Topol played Tevya in the film version of Fiddler on the Roof by Norman Jewison. And Topol is wonderful in this documentary and says a whole bunch of really interesting things. And, of course, Topol played Hans Zarkoff <laughs> in The Flash Gordon we're talking about. Yeah. And, boy, is he terrific in <laughs> Flash Gordon. He nails it. Yeah. He's so good in that movie. But that movie is not the 1976 <laughs> King Kong. Go with me for a second. What if Dino De Laurentiis had ignored all of his backers and cast Topol as King Kong. I like it. If I were a rich 
Doing that little dance where he shakes his arms. I found the Charles Grodin quote that makes me laugh at the end of near the end of King Kong. It's when he reveals Kong to the world and says, Hail to the power, hail to the power of Kong and Petrox. Which is a very cynical line, but I thought funny in the timing of how he delivers it. And again, I know exactly the scene that you're talking about because um, someone could argue he's overacting. I don't think he is. Oh, no, he totally is. In that, in, okay, I was trying to be kind. Um, he's. It's like he's possessed. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just just possessed by the power of this corporation um, that he works for. He's kind of like that the whole movie. Uh, yeah. He's, he's going real big in the, throughout the whole movie. Anything else about King Kong 1976 that you want to bring up? No, no. Um, I, I again, I, I can't, say this enough this might have more to do with quarantine than kong i really enjoyed watching it last night sure there's no blu-ray it of it so i wish there was my dvd looks like shit it was so much better than uh going to bed early and dreaming of a better tomorrow <laughs> um i will say this remember at the beginning of the podcast i mentioned that i had watched it streaming yeah because if you subscribe to hbo now there's a channel within hbo now that's curated by tcm it looked great. Yeah. Damn it's, it. It's an improvement over the disc. All right. Well, I still am not subscribing to uh, HBO Max, and I keep hoping, like, maybe Scream Factory, now that they're licensing Paramount titles, might uh, put it out. Yes. I know. You know, there's like Speaking... a there's an Australian Blu-ray, and I know the second I pull the trigger and import it, Scream Factory oh, will announce it. Of course. It. Speaking of Scream Factory... Uh, another one of those discs that was a little bit too late for Halloween. Uh, Scream Factory finally put out their Brides of Dracula. Yes. I reviewed it last week. Yes, you did. Uh, it is a much, it, it, I'm sorry, wrong word. It is a must-purchase disc. And if you haven't heard yet, December 22nd, Warner Archive is finally putting out a restored Curse of Frankenstein. And why is that? Because there is no version currently available that looks anything like it should. The correct answer is because of our podcast. Oh, I'm yeah. It is yes. I'm uh, <laughs> I screwed that up. It is because of our podcast. If you canoodle about on the Google machine or the YouTube machine, there's a video available showing you the restoration comparison. It's going to be a Merry Christmas. Ooh, very nice. Very nice. Well, thank you guys very much for listening. Thank you, Jay Bones, for talking about King Kong with me. This was a good suggestion, so thank you. You're welcome. Uh, thanks, everybody. Stay safe and make sure that you cry when Conk dies. King Kong on King Kong Glasses. Get one free at Burger Chef when you buy a Big Chef or Super Chef large fries and a large serving of Coca-Cola. Or get one with purchase of a regular size Coke at a special price. King Kong glasses. Get all four for your kids. You want a straw? You get more you like than Burger Chef.
Thanks for listening to FS Movie.